Well, good afternoon and a very, very warm welcome here to the Sunder Forum. Um, my name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral. And those of you who know me will know how happy I am to be here today to introduce today's speaker. Because of so many shared interests, uh, we often end up on the same speaking circuits. And uh, it was that way in which we first met and have since become uh, very good friends. So it is with a real pleasure today uh, for me to welcome Padraig. Padraig is a poet and a theologian based in Belfast. He teaches on religion, on storytelling, and on conflict transformation. And of course, he is the leader of the Coromila community, that 50-year-old Christian witness to peace in Northern Ireland. When I tweeted that he was coming today, someone straight away replied saying, ah, he was the man with the perfect speaking voice. I think it was one of your stalkers, actually, who wrote this, but uh, you can make up your own mind about his voice in a moment, but he has written also two books of poetry and recently published In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World, which uh, is certainly one of my favourite books of last year. Auden uh, once said that a poem should always be more interesting than anything you can say about it. And I think it's the same with speakers, such as today's. So let's just get on with it. Padraig will speak for 40 minutes, and then there will be time for questions before we finish promptly at 2 o'clock. So please, would you join me in welcoming Padraig Ochoa? Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Mark, for the invitation and the very warm welcome. It's lovely to see you here. Thank you for making the journey to be here. I came across to England on uh, Friday and did something with some churches in Oxford and then came down to London yesterday. And it's a real joy to be here. Um, Elizabeth Bowen was a Dublin writer who, in the 20th century, wrote, To turn from everything to one face is to find oneself face to face with everything. And I quote that at the beginning because I have a real interest in the power of small anecdote to enliven what can be potentially universal for what it means to be human. And I am... Um, didn't read Elizabeth Bowne. I stole that quote from somebody else who has actually read all of her and who used her. And so that person was Christian Wyman, editor of Poetry Magazine and a magnificent poet himself, former editor of Poetry Magazine. And I tell you where I got that, partly because in the Irish tradition, if you ever recite a poem or sing a song or play a tune, it's always good to say where you got it from, but also because it's good to steal. And Meg Carney is a Manhattan, was a Manhattan-based poet, and in her poem Creed she says, I believe good poets borrow, great poets steal. And she should know because she stole that without crediting it from T.S. Eliot, who used it in an essay himself. And he should know also because he stole that from a critic who didn't like him, who said something about you know, his stuff is just really stealing from other people. 
W.H. Davenport Williams was not a fan of uh, T.S. Eliot and wrote a review, of, uh, an unfavourable review of T.S. Eliot. So all that goes to say, I'll be telling you lots of stories, most of them mostly true, some of them even actually true, mostly. And we will be looking forward to hearing what is it about what it means to be human that can be discovered in the small moment of the everyday, because often I think something larger lurks within that. When I was 25, I had a dream about death. I was walking on a hillside in this dream and I bumped into a colleague, a colleague who had recently fallen into disrepute. And I was burdened in the dream walking on this hillside on a grey day. And I said to my colleague, I've just been condemned to death by our boss. And he went, I know, it happened to me two weeks ago. And then he said, you go down to the end of the, of the hill and you'll see there a cave in the wall and you have to go into the cave. And when you go into the cave, you sit and there's a chasm and the chasm will fill with fire and you'll choke on the smoke. And suddenly, without any thought, I was there at this rock face and my best friend was near me and he had to walk away because he wasn't allowed to accompany me. I don't know why he knew that or why I knew that, but we knew that neither could accompany me, uh, he, or he couldn't accompany me in. And I walked in, and I woke up. Now, fortunately, I was in psychotherapy at the time. I was living in Australia, a Jungian psychotherapy. I was living in Australia, and when I moved to Australia, a friend of mine, Siobhan, had said to me, you're a small bit obsessed with religion in a way that isn't always healthy. I recommend you find someone professional to talk to. There's only certain people that can say those kinds of things to you in a way that you're going to receive them. Anyway, I did receive that from my good friend Siobhan. And so I was in psychotherapy. And I said to the therapist on a Monday morning, because it had been a Saturday night into the Sunday morning that I'd had this dream, I said to the psychotherapist, we were due to speak about something else that day. We had planned we'd speak about something else. And I said... I had a dream yesterday, last night, or the night before last, and I told him it, and he said, we're going to put our plans aside. <laughs> and we stayed with the dream. As you can imagine, he was delighted. <laughs> Kept him in business for a bit longer. Here's a quote from Joseph Campbell, that extraordinary writer about myth, and uh, he wrote this book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and this whole uh, analysis about what myth and story does for the human person. He says, where you stumble, there lies your treasure. The very cave you are afraid to enter turns out to be the source of what you were looking for. The damned thing in the cave that was so dreaded has become the center. He might have written that from my dream because as I discovered a bit through psychotherapy and a bit through sitting down thinking about why was I so frightened and what was going to kill me, what was it that I was so frightened of being death to me that was going to rise up from a chasm? As I sat there, I realized I have to go into the cave and potentially I mightn't die at all. Potentially something else might die. Something else might come to an end and I might find inside there something that only I can discover only by myself. And that was the pilgrimage of that dream for me. And so in my prayer, in my fear, in my doubt, in my agnosticism, I took an imaginary journey into the cave, trying to figure out what it could be. 
At that stage, I was uh, 25, 26, and I was desperately trying to figure out what did it mean to be a person of faith who was trying to come to terms with being gay in a place where there was three or four people who I had told, but very few people, really. I'd been through various traumatic experiences when it came to telling a few people earlier on in my life exorcisms and reparative therapies, which I'll tell you about in a while. But none of those had filled me with confidence that there was something to be um, approached. I was desperately trying to be somebody who was denying that which part of me was telling me was true about me and with which a faith voice was telling me should be denied and to acquiesce to would be the annihilation of purity and morality and goodness in myself. And so I was desperately trying to figure out what was going on. So it was no wonder that a dream presented itself to me to say there is a cave into which you must walk. I was lucky too at the time that I had um, gone on a retreat to Teze. And in Teze, one of the brothers had mentioned this lovely idea where he opened up the, last, the second last chapter of the Gospel of John. And in it it says the disciples are in an upper room, the doors locked for fear of the Jews. It's a bit inconvenient because they're all Jewish. So who are they talking about? Why would you lock a door for fear of yourself? I suppose John is trying to make a different point. But I do think that there's a point to be made in the idea that they hadn't recognised their own selves and they were frightened of something in their own selves that they had perhaps pathologised by projecting onto others. And it says that Jesus was there among them. It doesn't say how he came to be there. And he says to them, peace be with you, which sounds very holy. Um, but as you reflect on it, and the brother in Teze brought us to this thought, he said, peace be with you in Arabic and Aramaic and Hebrew is just shalom or salam. It's just hello. It's as ordinary as a greeting. Hello. And so in another way you can think about it that the disciples were in the upper room frightened of themselves and the one whom they, whom they had abandoned suddenly was there and he said, Hi. As ordinary as the day is long. Nothing extraordinary at all. And perhaps if you were expecting something frightening because they'd heard that he had risen and most of them hadn't been there. What would you expect him to say? Where the hell were you? <laughs> to make a theological point. Instead of which, perhaps he surprises them with the ordinariness of his greeting. So combining that experience of the dream together with this uh, experience of retreat in Teze, and then finally also together with an article I read in National Geographic magazine where there was a woman who had grown up in Papua New Guinea. I, I don't know what her, whether her parents were medics or missionaries or anthropologists, I don't know. Um, she had grown up there as a child and her parents had worked with a nomadic people group and the, the nomadic people group were in one particular region and she was going back now as a National Geographic photojournalist and she was returning to the area knowing that if she wandered around a particular dense jungled area that eventually she'd bump into somebody because it wasn't like there was one particular homestead that they had and she was, there was photographs in the National Geographic article and she was writing a short essay as well and she recalled that in the language of the people to whom she was, for whom she was searching there is no particular word for hello there is however the following when you see somebody you say to them you are here and the reply is yes I am 
And so the dream and the retreat at Teze and the National Geographic article about Papua New Guinea all combined for me to make something about saying, where am I? How can I greet what is actually happening? Whether or not I think it should, whether or not I think it is convenient, whether or not I think it is holy, whether or not I think it is wise, whether or not I think it should happen in the grand scheme of things. What is happening? And how can I greet it with some quality of integrity, whether or not it frightens me or consoles me or brings desolation? What is a spiritual practice of telling the truth about what is happening? Even if I don't like it, how can I do that? And the book in the shelter, in many ways, is a long essay in the art of trying to greet your life without fear, or even with fear, and to greet the fear with which you greet your life. To find a way to simply say, here's what's happening. Within this space of prayer and doubt and faith and theism and atheism and agnosticism, all of those turns through which we go during any ordinary week, where things that happen in our lives are greeted with a whole mixture of surety and unsurety, certainty and imagination, curiosity and fear. There's a poem that I came to later on, a poem that I really love now, and you'll understand why. Uh, it's, uh, I'll read it to you, just a short bit of it. David Wagoner is the poem, the poet. He's a very well-established poet from the United States. And this poem is called Lost, and it's lines of advice written to somebody who's lost in a forest. And listen to it here. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. It's an extraordinary first three lines of the poem. I think it's a sonnet, that poem. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Powerful stranger isn't necessarily consoling. It's not necessarily easy to treat something as a powerful stranger, because strangers who are powerful maybe are not overly welcome. But if they're there, you must find a way to tell the truth that they're there. And if your life is ventured into a place where you would have thought it shouldn't be like this, well, whether it should or shouldn't, it is. And even if it's going to change, there needs to be a recognition of the way things are in order to find a way to make things in another way, if that is wise. And it's not always the case that it is wise to try to change. So much of faith for me had taught me how things should be on some other distant planet where I was more healthy, more holy, and more heterosexual than I was. None of which were true. And so therefore I had to figure out about what is the planet that I'm on, what is the wood in which I find myself, or the cave in which I find myself, the place from which I'm trying to move into the rest of my life with some modicum of integrity towards my faith as well as my intelligence. How do I pay attention to my love of language? How do I pay attention to the things that move me without feeling guilty about them? I think one of the things that you notice in the earliest chapters of Genesis, indeed in the first and second chapters, is this primal impulse in the writers of Genesis to give God a particular endeavor. And the endeavor that God has, as well as creating, is naming. To name and to create occur both at the same time, it seems. And it's an extraordinary thing, perhaps for early primal writers writing beautifully structured poetry, that they make divine 
the project of giving something a name. And I think trying to greet what is happening in our life falls back into that. How can I give a name to something that is happening? In as much as we recognize that the poetry of Genesis speaks about seven days, what's the, what's the eighth day? What's the 10,000th day? Or whatever millionth or billionth or trillionth day we're in now? What is happening today that needs the continuing creation of language to give it a name in order to be able to figure out where are we in this planet? Names are very powerful. And um, J.R.R. Tolkien, I think I know Lord of the Rings better than I know the Bible. Uh, and uh, Tolkien is often the one to whom I turn. And there's a lovely point when two hobbits are lost in a wood and they're wandering through the wood, and they're about to be killed by a large talking tree, an ent, tree beard is what he eventually tells them they can call him. But he stops for a second and realises that they're not small orcs, and he talks to them. And they give him their names and where they're from and their nicknames and their preferred names, and he thinks they're very hasty folk because they're so quick to share something so intimate. And then they ask him his name, and, he sa- and it says here... I will not give you my name. For one thing, it would take a very long time. My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language, in the old Entish, as you might say. It's a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it, because we do not say anything in it, unless it is worth taking a very long time to say and to listen to. And so we see here some way within which language itself creates. Language has the capacity to create something powerful. A friend of mine was told by her teacher when she was 11, you can't sing. And the teacher participated in some kind of divine act of desecration in that moment, or maybe a diabolical act of desecration. My friend is now 30, and actually can hold a tune quite well. But it probably took 15 years before they had the opportunity to, to get over what was created in that moment, if created is the right word, if you can create fear. Maybe fear was deepened in that. There's a poem I'd like to read for you, which is in the book, which is trying to reflect on what would a sacramental practice of naming today be like for all of us coming from the idea that in many of the liturgical traditions when people enter a place of worship or begin a prayer they bless themselves in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit or Holy Spirit depending as to which tradition you follow so here's a poem called In the Name In the name of goodness and love and broken community in the name of meaning, of feeling, and I hope you don't screw me. In the name of darkness and light and ungraspable twilight. In the name of mealtimes and sharing and caring by firelight. In the name of action, of peace and human redemption. In the name of eating, of drinking and table confession. In the name of sadness, regret and holy obsession. The holy name of anger, the spirit of aggression. In the name of forgive and forget and I hope I get over this. In the name of fathers and mothers and unholy spirits, in the name of beauty and broken and beaten up daily, in the name of seeing our creeds and believing in maybe. We gather here, a room full of strangers, to speak of our hopeland and talk of our danger, to make sense of our thinking, to authenticate lives, to humanize feeling and stop telling lies. 
in the name of philosophy, of theology, and who gives a damn, in the name of employment and study and finding new family, in the name of our passions, our lovings and indecent obsessions, in the name of prayer and of worship and of demon possession, in the name of solitude, quiet and holy reflection, the lost, the lonely, the without direction, in the name of the early and the late and the holy and effectual, in the name of the straight and the queer, the transgender and bisexual, in the name of boot clogs and boob jobs and erectile dysfunction, schizophrenia, hysteria and obsessive compulsion, in the name of Jesus and Mary and the mostly silent Joseph, in the name of speaking to ourselves, saying, this is more than I can cope with, in the name of touch up and break up and break down and weeping, in the name of therapy and Prozac and full hearted breathing, in the name of sadness and madness and years since I've smiled, in the name of the unknown, the alien and the holy in exile, in the name of the named and the unnamed and the names of the nameless, in the names of the prayers that repeat, I wish that I could change this, in the name of goodness and kindness, and intentionality in the name of harbour and shelter and family. <coughs> Ultimately, I think the In the Shelter book is an essay in the art and spirituality of language and its power to save or destroy, to create or desecrate. I've... Uh, being somebody who's loved language since an early age. Um, I grew up with Irish and English. I was sent along to, a, I suppose you could call it a kindergarten, except it wasn't anywhere near as organized as that at the age of two, where my dad said the woman who ran it, he said he heard her try to say a few words in English once, but she didn't know where to begin. She only spoke Irish. She's from West Kerry, the Dingle Peninsula, the head of the Dingle Peninsula. And so language for me was always interesting. Um, I have a deaf auntie, and while I don't have any sign language to speak of, you know, I've got a few hundred signs that I've looked at because I'm interested, but I can't speak sign. I was around a lot of sign as well, and I found that really interesting to think, what is the potential of language of the hands within that context too? And so I always had confidence in my love of language. Not necessarily confidence that I was an expert, because I don't know that anybody is, because language is always unfolding and elastic and electric. I didn't, however, have confidence in religion, and I didn't have confidence in the Bible. The Bible was a Protestant book, as far as I was concerned, and I accidentally fell into the company of Protestants from the age of around 11. I started going along to camps, and I was surrounded by people that could recite off little verses when somebody would say, Ephesians 4.10, if indeed that exists, and they'd chirp it back, you know, and I'd be surprised, wondering, where's, where's the index where I can look for these books? When I left school, I um, didn't get into medicine, which is what I wanted to do, or I, what I thought I wanted to do. So I joined a church group for a number of years. And in order to join the church group, you had to fill in an application form. And in the application form, it asked you about your faith and your parish and blah, blah, blah. But it also asked you, um, have you ever been involved in the following? Occultism, alcoholism, drug addiction, homosexuality. And I was 17 and three quarters and I saw those four diabolical boxes and wondered who came up with the four boxes. <laughs> and I also wondered what will I do if I want to do this, if I want to join this church group, I'll have to tick 
And it was a venture into something that was terrible and desperately frightening and ultimately abusive, as I reflect on it now. But it did also begin a venture for me into the truth of finding a language to tell. And initially, the language I had was only one word, struggle with a homosexual orientation. All one word, no spaces, no gaps. <laughs> I struggled with a homosexual orientation. And in my first week in the church group, which I chose to be in, and I chose to stay in also, and there was a rough and tumble and delight and joy of community amidst the three exorcisms that happened in my first year and the reparative therapy that happened throughout all of my <coughs> second year. And in all of that, I struggled with absolute lack of confidence about what does it mean when we speak about God or the Bible. Or I had no confidence when it came to that. But I always had confidence in language. I was writing coded poetry all that time. And toward the end, in fact, the very last day of my time in reparative therapy, it wasn't bad theology or bad psychology, both of which were present in abundance in the reparative therapy. It was bad grammar that saved me. <laughs> because I said to the guy, um, I'm not even sure that I want to want to have sex with a woman. And he said, your problem is that you've used the word have. He said, you should want to want to give sex to a woman. And I remember thinking, that is such awful grammar. <laughs> and such a terrible choice of verb. And also a very powerful language to give. What if she didn't want to receive it, whoever this future bride of mine was to be? And I left and I never went back. And the exhilaration of getting onto the number 16 bus and going across Dublin City back to a place where I could share this story with nobody because nobody would rejoice with me. I could only rejoice myself in the language that had saved me. And it began a confidence to say, I think I can have my own thoughts. And maybe if only in the small cocoon of my own story, I begin to pay attention to that. Maybe somehow I might find something of God there. I did later on in life do a small bit of work with a parish in the Philippines where I was working there for deaf people and they use American Sign Language there. So I bought a dictionary of American Sign Language and became um, entranced really about the living and visual etymology that sign has. And when you look at the, the, the sign, actually both in British Sign Language and in American Sign Language for fear, it takes one or both hands and speaks here, touching the touching the chest, speaking about fear as an embodied reality, something that is embodied in itself. But then courage goes from here out to this. So fear is the first word of courage, but it comes out from there. How is it that courage can come from the very places that we are frightened? I'm brought back to Joseph Campbell. The very cave, the damned thing, will be the centre. Sign language tells us this, the deepest poetry and impulses of spirituality and courage and protest and exile tell us this, that somehow from the heart of all fear, courage can come. Much of all this, much of what I'm talking about is the power of language. But I also, I suppose, want to speak about the language of power. Because if we do not pay attention to the language of power, and ways within which language trespasses upon the borders of power, well then we are being willfully ignorant, I would say. I would have said blind a few years ago until Dave Cunningham, a friend of mine, said, I'm blind, I'm uninterested in my impairment being used as a metaphor for your stupidity. <laughs> and it stopped me 
using other people's impairments as a way of speaking about my own incapacity. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke that's often called the Good Samaritan. I don't like to call it the Good Samaritan because it implies there was a whole load of terrible Samaritans and there was a good one. My dad spoke about um, the woman who worked in the office where he had worked for for almost 50 years who was a Protestant and he goes, but she's lovely. (laughs) And so in as much as there is more than one good Samaritan and more than one lovely Protestant in Cork, I'm not sure what I call this story, one of the good Samaritans. It's a parable. There's somebody who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're set upon by robbers and beaten and left for dead at the side of the road. And two people from the, from the person's own tradition pass by and don't help for one reason or another. The reasons aren't given. But another person who isn't from his community, a Samaritan, does pass by and indeed does help. And in many ways, it's a story about being a neighbour to somebody who you wouldn't consider a neighbour to be. And that's, it's relatively unsurprising Most traditions have stories like that. But what I think is really interesting is the possibility of reading this story from the other side, which is less about to whom will you give help and more about from whom will you receive help. Because it's frightening, I think, to find yourself in the debt of somebody who you might consider to be your moral or social or intellectual or national inferior. How can you receive? How can you be the guest to somebody toward whom you would much rather be the host. How can we undo power like that? Years ago, I was praying with lots of zeal, Lord God, send me anywhere. And an image came to my mind about what I work with a traveling community. And I left the room where I was sitting full of zeal, full of prayer, walked away. I wasn't sure what it would be like to be associated with the traveling community. Somehow there's this feeling of taint and contamination that comes upon us when we think of groupings of people with whom we would rather not be associated. And I was in need of a radical conversion in my attitude towards an shul, which is the Irish word for the travelling community. I was in need of an absolutely radical conversion about my, what's the word, racism, prejudice, predetermined opinion based on absolutely nothing but other people's predetermined opinions. And I needed to be changed. A few years later, I did go to Uganda, which was the place that I thought I would have loved to have been sent to. And I had a lovely time. This was in 1996. And then around 2009, 2010, I became concerned when I heard that in Uganda, a, a bill was being put through Parliament, a bill that proposed the death penalty for lesbian and gay and bisexual Ugandans. Ugandans already who were gay were penalised under the penal code, which up until 2000 only penalised men who had carnal relations with men. In 2000, it got extended in an Equal Opportunities Act to women also. And now it was being put forward that the death penalty would be proposed. And a friend of mine was in charge of a funding agency that gave a lot of money to dioceses and Christian witnesses about uh, in Uganda uh, to do very good work with very good people. But nonetheless, many of the people there also gave public support. Who, people in receipt of these monies had given public support to the death penalty. So I wrote to my friend and said, um, if you do nothing, you've got blood in your hands. Uh, we're old friends, so we can speak clearly to each other. And he said to me, well, what would you do? And so we thought about it and 
coming from a country that was colonized itself, I'm familiar with the idea of the arrogance of your erstwhile colonizers coming in to say, here is the way you should act morally now. And so I understand many, many resistances to human rights as neo-colonialism that you might find in many places that are resistant to the UN coming in in the name of morality and human rights after having messed up countries and drawn artificial borders and criminalized languages to suddenly say, now, how about you start to act like we would? Nonetheless, I was concerned about what was being said in the name of Christianity because it was Catholic, Anglican, Pentecostal and Orthodox leaders who were joining together in an ecumenical movement to promote the Kill the Gays Bill. So um, I said, well, to my friend who was the funder, I would um, say, let's take the moral narrative that you do find normative, the Gospels, and let's explore who are the moral marginalised there and how are they depicted in those texts? And what does it mean to apply those today? There's a chapter in the book that talks about the language of power when it comes to religion. I'd like to read you a small bit from it. Well, there was one bit, this is the, the bit that I'm about to read, comes after one point towards the end. Somebody in the room had said, if, um, if I found myself to be a gay Ugandan, I probably would want the church's love and protection rather than the church's um, endorsement of the death penalty. And somebody stood up and turned to me and pointed at me and said, you are illegal. They didn't know I was gay. I changed the way I spelled my name. Um, but I, I found... In my mind, I was understanding this according to Wilfred Bion's theory of hostility and group dynamics. I was processing it all perfectly. It was all very easy. But I realized, very nonchalantly, I've gotten up from where I'm sitting and stood at the door. The body tells its own language sometimes. And these were people whose work I respected very much because of the work that they did. Nonetheless, I didn't respect their words about lesbian and gay people. Here's what the book says. I relate this not because the events were particularly traumatic, after all I was booked to leave, but because it seems unlikely to me that among the dozens of people I interviewed that week, there weren't other LGBT people. I've experienced enough homophobia in my life, homophobia that has affected my job, housing, safety and mental health. But the day of the exchange, I wondered who else I'd met who was living in a way that was so alert to the tiniest hint that they might be suspected of being lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender. I thought about the Irish missionaries of various denominations who have participated in endorsing such a didactic, discursive climate. I wondered about, wondered about what the hell Jesus would say if he were in that room, and I wondered if I'd even want to recognise him. I wondered at my own complicity in all of this, and I praised those people in Uganda who use their voices to speak out the truth. My guess, though, is that I encountered numbers of LGBT people who knew well how to keep quiet. I wondered at the skills of survival they must practice on a daily basis, and I wondered about any preemptive practices they put into place to ensure safety from questioning. I wondered about the lies that they had to tell, not only to others, but to themselves, in order to entertain the possibility of living. And I wondered at the power, dignity and imagination denied them in the name of God, Christian morality and Ugandan sovereignty. Fear and courage start off as the same sign when you speak with your hands. Hello to fear. Hello to courage. 
I was interested about the ways within which the story we tell about God and ourselves and our identity and our colonization frames the ways within which we live now because the story can begin in so many places. I've done a practice with groups for years where you say, if right now you were to tell the story of your life, what would the first sentence be? People say such extraordinary things when they do that. Part of that story, part of that question came from me when I was a school chaplain years ago and I used to work with young people. There'd be 30 of them would come into our chaplaincy centre for the day and then they'd be split up into four different groups and I'd work with one of the groups and we'd do this imagination exercise where they'd take a walk loosely based on a gospel passage and they'd meet Jesus on the walk and he'd say hello to them and know their name, they'd have a chat. And then we'd talk about it afterwards and they could say whatever they wanted or nothing at all if they wanted to keep their thoughts to themselves. And this one 11-year-old fellow said to me once, when, Jesus, when I was talking to Jesus, I said to him, how do I know you are who you say you are? He was a lovely 11-year-old fellow, full of confidence and ease and affection. He was delightful. And I thought, Christologically speaking, his question was pristine. It's at the heart of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Anyway, I said to him, did Jesus say anything back to you? And he said, yeah, yeah. He looked at me and he told me the story of my life. And I was aghast with the beautiful experience that this boy had had, 11 years old on a Tuesday morning in some school retreat that he was on. And I said to him, uh, that's a very special experience. And he went, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, can I color? And so he got up, he wanted to color in the poster that the class was making. And that was part of the deliciousness of story for him, that it was there to be forgotten, but not for me to be forgotten. But I didn't have to force him into remembering, because perhaps it was always for me, or perhaps it was for no one, and I've made it into something for me. It doesn't matter. I've made it into something anyway. And there's a poem I'd like to read for you um, called Narrative Theology, which comes from that. If I can find it. Narrative Theology. And I said to him, are there answers to all of this? And he said, the answer is in a story and the story is being told. And I said, but there is so much pain. And she answered plainly, pain will happen. Then I said, will I ever find meaning? And they said, you will find meaning where you give meaning. The answer is in a story, and the story isn't finished. There's something about the possibility of telling stories that begin in many different places that opens us up to the possibility that not only the present and the future are open for debate and art, but also the past. Because there's always a new place to begin the story, even terrible stories. I've had some terrible stories in my life, and I know you have had too. What is it that art and fiction can teach us about the possibility of finding a new place to begin? Not to deny the other older place to begin, but in a way that reframes it, perhaps. Jeanette Winterson has a lovely quote in her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. She says the following, When we tell a story, we exercise control, but in such a way as to leave a gap, an opening. It is a version, but never the final one. And perhaps we hope that the silences will be heard by someone else and the story can continue, can be retold. When we write, we offer the silence as much as the story. Words are part of the silence that can be spoken.
One of the things I love about the history of the New Testament in the Christian tradition is that it begins really with the writings of Paul. Those were among the earlier ones to be written and some of the other epistles. And what begins sometimes in a relatively didactic and discursive and sometimes quite argumentative approach towards things evolves into the story of this man who said that he was truth and who irritated people who said they believed in the truth. A man who paid attention to a woman who pushed through a crowd or a woman who challenged him based on his own misogyny. A man who paid attention to women who were generous to him and a man who honoured people whose touch was usually dishonoured. The story of the New Testament evolves into stories that can't be contained. The writer of the Gospel of John toward the end of says, if we were to write everything down, I suppose the world wouldn't hold all the books. A lovely piece of hyperbole to pay attention to. That somehow there's a story that began and is continuing. And there is a pilgrimage into story, our own story and the stories that form us, that the people of God are called into. And if we believe in God, well then we believe all people are people of God. And so there is space for all to find some part of their own story in that. Sometimes that story will be one of faith or protest or critique or challenge or hate or love. How is it that we find a way within which the wide and violent and terrible and beautiful story of the world can be held together in a way where we have hope for the possibility of stories being told in a way that can create rather than destroy? I wrote a master's on the application of literary criticism to the Gospels and one critique of that methodology is that oh, it treats the Gospels like they're fiction. But I suppose the response to that is to say, so what? Fiction is also true. When my best friend took his own life and I was living on the other side of the world, I went into a bookshop and opened up The Lord of the Rings and I turned to the part where Gandalf is dead and the company that have been accompanying him rush their way to a place of safety. And they hear laments for the great wizard who has died. And they turn to Legolas, the elf, and they ask him to translate the laments. And it says that he refuses because the grief was too near, a matter for tears and not yet for song. We live by fiction whether or not we believe in elves and wizards or men who come along saying that they're God. There's something in the power of language that transforms us through poetry, through story, through narrative, through the arc of myth, which is more true than true. There's something that transforms us into the possibility of living from the imagination in a way that can make a difference in the world today. I've gone a little bit over, so I'm going to stop. So we have about a quarter of an hour for some uh, questions or comments that you'd like to bring into the room, so be bold. I don't know. It's not really a question, but uh, it's just about your um, going into the cave. Uh, when I was 24, I had a stroke. Uh, so one minute I was charging around 
and requesting that people do things for me and the next minute um, I was in hospital and unable to speak and I sort of regarded it as almost like you're okay and people were going around and the consultant said um, she's going to die it's not a question of when uh, it's a question of how um, you know how how the death is going to happen, and it will happen within the next week. Uh, and I couldn't speak at all, uh, so I sort of panicked. And it's very odd panicking when you can't use your hands or feet or your voice. Uh, and I had the uh, for me it was uh, a voice which said, "Don't worry." Um, you know, I'll be with you. So it didn't say whether I'd live or die, but it would. Um, so apparently I calmed down, and that did endless good to my uh, the, my inside, internal bits. And so I, I, I sort of led there, and people who came to see me were really frightened, uh, almost frightened of me. Uh, and, and they wouldn't look at me and all this. Uh, and when I did come out of it, I actually came out of it with feeling that I've been given something. And uh, I, I'm always curious about that. So I don't know whether you can help, but it's just an interest. It's an interesting story. Thank you. What's your name? What's your name? Mary. Mary. Sorry. That's a beautiful story, because the wrong question to ask is, did that internal moment happen or not? <laughs> you know, how can you prove it? What exactly was it? The better question to ask is, what happened as a result of it? And your body and your life and your words are living witness to what was able to happen within that. Thank you. I have questions or comments. This is, uh, I guess, it's a request rather than a question because it may not fair directly to what you've been saying. Can you give us a word from Corrymeela? Give you a word from Corrymeela? Tell me what might Corrymeela be bringing to us from Corrymeela? Well, greetings and prayer. Uh, Corrymeela fifty, was 50 years old in 2015. Um, 50 years of bearing witness to the possibility that human beings can turn towards each other in friendship especially when difficulties are different and differences are difficult. Um, how is it that we can do that? And our hope really, as we look into 2016, remembering 1916 where we had the Easter uprising in Dublin and the Battle of the Somme, two events that uh, will captivate the imagination and memory of people on both of these islands. How is it that we can remember the past in a way that creates a present for us today, rather than remembering the past in a way that builds borders that are dangerous for people who are on the other side of those borders. That's our hope and our witness. Bearing witness to our complicity too, to be the perpetrators of that, not only the diagnostics, diagnosticians about what healing can be, but also we can be perpetrators of pain, <coughs> finding the language to confess that for ourselves. That's the practice that holds us together, not our perfection or our brilliant witness to peace, but our continual return to the need to confess the ways in which we hurt each other. So that's our word for you today. And for ourselves, it's our word for us every day. Yes. 
You said about um, in the story of your life, or you, you challenge students to give life and story their life the first time. What's your perspective? Of this book or just today? No, I mean, See, I've done that story, I've done that practice so often that I love that it changes every minute. You know, where would I start right now if I was to start? I'd probably say, when I was 11, I wrote a poem and my sister went rooting through my room and found it and made it better. <laughs> it's true, she did. <laughs> this book starts off by saying... Um, uh, I didn't grow up in a city, but I was born at the edges of one. So it changes all the time. That's, the, that's what I love about that question, is that that's the whole idea, is that the story of your life is always beginning, uh, because you're always in a different moment where you're beginning it. So. I mean, you can find a whole lot of people who define what Celtic spirituality means. Um, and some of it is, there's a Latin word for some of what is put forward. And the Latin word is horse shit, because it's made up. <laughs> of it. So, I think there needs to be a way within recognizing that most spiritualities that come from a particular place arose because people were frightened of dying and so they ascribed divine features to that which they hoped wouldn't kill them. In Australia, there's an extraordinary tradition of respect about the relationship between self and the land, community and the land. And that's because in Australia, the land might kill you. And similarly, in Ireland, there's an extraordinary tradition, and in Britain too, Celtic spirituality finds as much of an ancient home here as it does there, a way within which you respect the changing features of the seasons and find a way to sacramentalise the longest day, the shortest day, the days when the sun is in a particular place, the day when the sun is highest. And so what I like about Celtic spirituality and most indigenous spiritualities is that they are absolutely and firmly rooted in the here and now. What is happening in nature now? And how can I respond to that in a way that will help me feel a semblance of control with the idea that I mightn't die. And most, of, most Celtic practices and other indigenous spiritualities are firmly rooted within the contours and the seasons of the land. And so, in the, the, ancient, the ancient spirituality of Celtic spirituality, I wasn't necessarily speaking about Christianity in that way, but the ancient spirituality, you look at Stonehenge, you look at other places, there are ancient practices across all of these islands, the Celts in Wales, the Sassnach, the, the Gaels up in Scotland, and the Gaels in Ireland, ways within which people paid attention to, in pagan times, um, the, uh, the, the transition of the seasons and had practices around which to place those, and then ways within which some of those sometimes directly and other times indirectly, continue to be practiced. So. Oh. Uh, from your thought, um, how do you cope with your fear in, uh, when you have physical uh, fear, also uh, when you enter the cave as well as when you have 
mentioned about sexual orientation. Uh, so how do you cope with the fear of uh, uh, what might lurk in the corner, um, whether physically or emotionally, spiritually, and yeah. Um, I think that's why I, I like to call this book in the shelter, uh, I like to call it a book of essays because the word essay in English comes from the French verb essayer, which means to try. And uh, I do think that this book is a long attempt to try to find a way to respond to fear, which is one of the primal things that undoes us as humans. And I do think that a practice of greeting fear and by greeting, I don't necessarily mean that it's always easy or lovely or nice or a good thing to accept it. Oh, it's here. I'm not saying just put up with it. To greet it can also mean to find a way to get rid of it, to find a language wherein you're not in total control of something else. Um, so when it comes to me being frightened, I have done two things. One, find a way to greet it and find a way within which, why am I frightened of this fear? In Irish, when you say... You know, in English you can say just in case or belt and braces, you say as well. In Irish you say eragla na hagla, and it literally translates as um, upon the fear of fear. So we're not only frightened, we're frightened of fear. And so I find a way to have an internal response and spirituality and a practice of greeting my own fear. But I also think there is a wisdom in finding a way to make yourself safe as well. And so, for instance, I... When I moved house a number of years ago, I moved to a place where I wouldn't feel frightened for being gay because I had begun to feel frightened where I had been living previously. I moved away from ever being employed by an organization that would fire me were they to know about my sexual orientation. And those were endeavors I put into place to make myself safe. Um, so I greeted the fear, but I also made myself as safe as I was able. And I'm very privileged in that. Many other people aren't nearly as privileged to have the capacity to do that. So. Too there. Said I, I missed that. Sorry. Larkin, I think, said, "What remains of us is love." Hmm. Would you like to add anything else to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I will say something interesting. Um, in Irish, love is a, love is a noun, but not a verb. Uh, you can't, there isn't a verb, a formal verb for love in Irish. And I always think that that is a beautiful thing because it, it helps you to be a little bit more creative with language. So in romantic love, if you're telling somebody that you're in love with them in Irish, you can say machiolhu, which means you are my music. And so what I love is that love is only one word for it. There's all kinds of other words for it too. Talking about your own, your own. Sorry, I missed that bit again, talking about? When you spoke of Uganda, you were very wisely critical of the idea that we have the right to impose our values in the way that Elton John might berate the people of Russia for not accepting gay rights. It's fairly clear they don't want such a thing. Um, given that for the Anglican Church in Uganda and the Roman Catholic Church in Uganda, they are both founded on the celebration of the martyrdom of those young men who resisted the advances of King, whatever his name was. Those martyrs are celebrated annually in the way that Oscar Romero is celebrated by the people of El Salvador. They are absolutely crucial to the Christian identity of, of every Christian in Uganda. 
how can historical memory deal with that mm. in terms of, of gay rights? Because right. surely there is an absolute contradiction sure. to how do you honor those martyrs as all Ugandans do, and at the same time work towards what we call gay rights. Mm. I suppose my practice and hope is to go back when it comes to Christianity, to the texts that form Christianity, those of Jesus of Nazareth, who also was martyred or murdered, whatever you want to call it, and find a way wherein we can problematize the idea that God was happy with that death and God was like, great, now I can make the people of God clean. How is it that we can find a way to problematize the idea of redemptive death in that way and look at the emptiness and the hollowness of God's death as the thing that saves us from the depth of ourselves and the worst in ourselves? So I, I do think, uh, I do go back to the texts of the Gospels to problematize the idea of redemption plus death equals, equals loveliness. So. It's time for one more question. <laughs> I can say a poem if you like. Oh, yes. Cool. So I think it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is almost the importance of redeeming language so it can be used very negatively but then it can also be used in a beautiful way um, but I was just wondering what do you think about you come across people who use language um, to put people down uh, to put forth their agendas I was just wondering how you start engaging with those people and um, they don't want to change their language yeah. how do you start the conversation Sure. Um, I'm one of those people, so I suppose the first thing is to recognize the ways in which I enjoy putting people down with my language and to recognize human complicity in that practice. Um, and I think most people care about something, and at the heart of even a public critique is the caring for something else. And whether or not I share that, it is interesting to find a way wherein we can find that which we care about and to speak from there. I regularly do public dialogues with people who come from different sides of an event. That could be different sides from people who took a life or who were bereaved through the troubles. Or it could be people who think very different things about lesbian and gay people or about migrants or about different things of like that. And the point is, is how can our language be electric? How can it create something? How can it have an energy to it? And how can we find surprising ways into having unpredictable conversations and unpredictable relationships across difference? in a way that can benefit us rather than harm us. And I suppose I do have a belief that language can save us. And I don't mean really esoteric removed language, I mean the depth of language, the story of the human person, and how friendships can be built across the, mo across the most unlikely of barriers. And we can find a way towards each other, which doesn't mean to agree with each other, but we can be surprised by each other's capacity. There's a story in the book where once was working with a bunch of religious people to talk about lesbian and gay people, bisexual and transgender people. And toward the end of the few days' encounter, um, one of the men in the room who had self-described as a fundamentalist, that was his own word for himself, he said, um, I have a question to ask all the gay people in the room. I'd work away. And he said, um, how many times since we met, 24 or 48 hours ago, whatever it was, how many times since we met have my words bruised you? And he had said some pretty harsh things. <laughs> and one of the fellows in the room went, ah, you're lovely, you're grand, don't worry. You know? <laughs> uh, and the guy said, no, answer me. How many times? And the fellow next to me started to count. And he went, I've given up after the first hour. 
And then the man said, are you telling me that you have to armour yourself before you meet ministers of the gospel like me? And somebody said, any time I turn on the radio, I have to armour myself, given the context that we're in. And he was the one who explored his own borders. And I have been struck over and over again by his practice of exploring not his intention, but his impact and the absolute commitment he had to say, no, don't console me. I don't want your consolation. Tell me the truth. And I was converted by his practice. And I was uninterested, really, at the end of the day, to say to him, have you changed your mind about the gays? Do you like us now? Um, because he didn't. I mean, I, he, was, he said very harsh things. But I think he was a moment of conversion for me into the possibility of respect that can happen across in the most unlikely of situations. So... Move me away. <laughs> um, you mentioned Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist. <clears throat> One of the things Joseph Campbell said, I remember, is that most of us spend the first 35, 40 years of our life climbing up onto the top of, onto the roof, only to discover when we get there that it's the wrong house. <laughs> And uh, then you call what we call midlife crisis, I suppose. But I think what I always find when I listen to you is that you bring back that moment of when you suddenly realise you're on the wrong house and that the fresh air that you bring into a room is also very distilled and, uh, and full of hope. I always feel when I, I hear you that the future is actually going to be built on hope. Uh, it's a huge gift to bring into any room uh, today. So thank you for reminding us about the sacramentality of language, about the fact that we, uh, many of us, follow a man who was a storyteller, even though if you read the creeds, it misses it out. But, you know, the Good Samaritan never existed. He made it up. He was a storyteller. Uh, and stories, of course convey meanings without making that final mistake of telling you what they are. And your book is a, is a beautiful unravelling of that truth. Um, I love the fact that you always remind us that unawareness is the root of all evil. And, and finally, um, as I read you and as I hear you, constantly I'm reminded, and it's something I do need to be reminded, that God is never going to be the object of our knowledge because God should always be the cause of our wonder. And you remind me of that in whether we're drinking wine late last night together or when we're in a formal lecture um, scenario like this. You live and breathe it. And uh, on behalf of all of us here, I want to thank you so much. You are our music. <laughs> Thank you.